Good morning, Grace. My name is Fred. I've been a member here since the 20th century or so, and every now and then I get to preach. I always appreciate it. I'm especially eager to share with you this morning from Genesis 49, which is where we are. Genesis 49, looking at one of the last big things that happens in this book. What we have here is the last words of Jacob. Look at verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I, might, that I might tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Hear Israel your father. And then look down to the very end of the chapter, verse 33. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So that's, that's the chapter. That's what we've got in front of us this morning. And in between, we've got Jacob's last words, and that's what we're going to look at. Final words are supposed to be profound and full of meaning. They're supposed to sum up your life. I don't know if this is morbid on my part, but I'm really interested in last words that people say. Um, not that I'm scripting mine or planning mine, and you never know if you're going to get to say your last words because we don't get to choose those sorts of things. But it'd be nice to have something in mind, something like I love you or thank you or close those curtains or something. So, um, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes people are caught in an unguarded moment with their last words and they end up with something trivial. You know Bing Crosby's last words I looked up? They were, that was a great game of golf, fellas. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of nice to praise a simple pleasure in life like golf, but as your final words, it's a little disappointing. Or um, uh, Lou Costello from Abbott and Costello, the comedy team, his final words were, that was the best ice cream soda I ever tasted. <laughs> I don't know if the ice cream soda was related to his death or what happened there. There's nothing wrong with those, golf, ice cream soda, little words of praise, but they lack the kind of depth or gravitas you'd want for your final words. They're better than the poet Dylan Thomas's final words. His last recorded sentence was, and I quote, I've had 18 straight whiskeys. I think that's the record. But even that's better than the last words of Caligula, the evil Roman emperor. He died when his own bodyguards decided to stab him to death. So that's pretty bad. Um, and the last thing he said was apparently, I am still alive. <laughs> Which is, I mean, paradoxical. It was true enough when he said it, but... Um, it's a lot of pressure figuring out your last words. Karl Marx could not take the pressure. His housekeeper asked him to say something deep that she could pass on to posterity to say, this is the last thing Marx said. And Marx got mad at her and said, get out of here. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. So she wrote that down, and here we are talking about it. Right? <laughs> or similarly, Pancho Villa, the Mexican revolutionary, found himself at a loss for words in the gun battle that ended his life, and he said, don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something. <laughs> so, so that's what he said. Well, with Genesis 49, we have got a whole other level of last words. These are big, wild, powerful, end of Genesis, capstone on an amazing life, prophetic, inspired, final words. Let's get into them. Look at 49.1. Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come, or literally in the last days. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Hear Israel, your father. Hear Israel. You know, Deuteronomy 6 famously says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. 
But Genesis 49 doesn't say, hear, O Israel. It's not talking to Israel. It's saying, hear, hear Israel. Listen to Israel. Listen up, sons of Jacob. Hear what Israel says. So all I want to do this morning is obey the word of God by hearing Israel, hearing these last words, listening to these final words of Jacob. Let me warn you in advance, these are strange, strange words from a long time ago. If you remember the reading service, these words struck us as funny. They were so out of the blue. This book, the Bible, the Word of God, is a very old book. We're in a very old part of a very old book. It's a strange book. It's a book full of surprises. It's a book we did not make up for our own purposes to meet our immediate needs. If we were making up a holy book, we would have made up a much more relevant, obvious, applicable one without all the weird bits in it. Sometimes I admit Christians get a little tired of how old and strange the book is, and we begin to treat it sort of like, I want to say this reverently, the elderly people in your household who are sort of set in their ways and you can't do anything about it, so you kind of work around them and explain to people what to expect from uncle so-and-so, right? Um, Sometimes we treat the book that way. There are misguided preachers who want to unhitch Christianity from the old weird part of the Bible, or most of the Bible, as my friend Joe Henderson calls it, the Old Testament. There are even liberal churches that are embarrassed of the book and consistently, publicly apologize for its very existence and for what it says. But have you ever stopped to think, as much as people might want to uh, poke fun at Christians for having such an old book, everybody in the world actually wishes they had an old, strange, authoritative book. They're all kind of secretly crushing on the fact that we've got an old, weird book. You know, Half the magic in Harry Potter is about school kids consulting old, weird books in old, big libraries. The Lord of the Rings features ancient prophecies and dusty volumes that people get insight into, sometimes by going to strange old book collections. And even the Jedis all of a sudden have an ancient book, right? At least since episode eight, or at least they did. And I mean, wait, never mind. I don't want to be controversial here, but my point is... Even the people who make fun of believers for having a weird old book really are kind of romantically attracted to the idea of having a weird old book. So it would be weird if we who actually have the strange old book apologize for it and try to get out of that business and disassociate ourselves from it when everybody else is looking for any old book to link up to. The Mormons really wanted an ancient book full of strange things so much that they invented one a couple hundred years ago in New York. Islam needed an ancient book since the Christians and the Jews were people of the book and had one, so they came up with the Quran about 1,400 years ago, around 600 AD. But the Old Testament goes way back beyond that. It's the oldest and sometimes I think the strangest of all the old books. It's the original. Accept no substitutes and don't apologize for this one and don't be embarrassed by it. So let's hear Israel in this very old part of a very old book. Genesis 49.1, Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Jacob brings together his sons and then he has something to say to each one of them. His speech to them goes through all 12 of his sons, starting with Reuben the firstborn, then Simeon and Levi, and working his way all the way down to Joseph and Benjamin the youngest. But even though Jacob starts with the oldest and ends with the youngest, He doesn't go quite in order of their birth. I had to make two charts to work this all out, so I'll just give you the the overview here. Instead, he starts with his first wife, Leah, and names not only her first four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, he then jumps to her other two sons, Issachar and Zebulun, even though they were born later on, ninth and tenth out of the twelve in birth order. So he lists all six of these in a row, 
though there were other sons in between. And then he ends with Rachel's sons, the only two sons of his beloved second wife, Rachel, who he was working for the whole time, his favorite boys, Joseph and Benjamin, numbers 11 and 12 in birth order. But between Leah's six and Rachel's two, he lists birth order sons, number five, six, seven, and eight, that is Dan, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. They are not the sons of either of his wives, but of their maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah. Everyone got that completely clear? Good. I would have gone slower if we hadn't all just read through the Genesis story together. Um, brothers and sisters, this is a complicated family I'm trying to describe to you. I don't even know the right way to talk about it. Is it blended? Are these uh, stepbrothers and half-brothers or half-brothers or half-stepbrothers? Can you imagine the complexity and difficulty that this family had when everybody got together for Christmas? Or they didn't have Christmas back then, it's the Old Testament, so how about Passover? <laughs> or they didn't have Passover then, it's Genesis, not Exodus. So like, I don't know, something safe, Thanksgiving. Um, <laughs> did they have Thanksgiving? The point is, it's a big table with complicated relationships around it. There is no safe seating chart right? You said, let's put those two across from each other. Oh, no, wait, he tried to kill him. I forgot about that. Okay, okay let's put, the, put Benjamin by dad. No, wait a minute, that's too predictable. Here they all are, together at Father Jacob's bedside for his dying words. The whole family's back together, all the kids from all the moms, hanging out together, safe in Egypt, letting bygones be bygones, putting the past behind them, at least till dad dies, trying not to talk anymore about that time they sold one of their brothers into slavery and told dad he was dead. And Jacob says, let me tell you how it's going to be. Or the actual quote, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come, or literally in the last days. Assemble and listen. Here is a flyover summary of what happened. We're not going to have time to unpack all of these, but just look down through these final words. Verse 3, Reuben, my firstborn, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, unstable as water. You will not have preeminence. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi share the same three verses. Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce. I will scatter them in Israel. Verse 8, Judah gets five verses. Your brothers shall praise you. You shall rule. A ruler will come from you. This is important. We'll be back for the Judah section. Verse 13, Zebulun, a haven for ships. Verse 14, Issachar, a strong donkey at forced labor. Verse 16, Dan, a snake that bites the horse's hill and the rider falls off and he's a real snake and it's a, kind of a weird story here. Verse 19, Gad, raided and a raider. Verse 20, Asher, a gourmet, his food shall be rich. Verse 21, Naphtali, a beautiful doe with beautiful fawns. Verse 22, Joseph gets five long verses as we might expect at this point in Genesis. A sixfold blessing. May the blessings be on the head of Joseph, who was set apart from his brothers. Verse 27, Benjamin, wolf boy. Verse 28, these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. So we learn here, actually, for the first time in verse 28, that this is a blessing. It didn't say so up top. And to be honest, it doesn't all sound like a blessing, but it is one big, complex, inwardly structured blessing. But this is not how we would expect Jacob to talk. We might expect Jacob to give a weak blessing to the firstborn. After all, this is Jacob. He's a sneaky, sneaky man with a long history of skipping the firstborn. 
He connived a way to get the blessing from his firstborn brother and keep it for himself, the secondborn. He has strong opinions about birth order and likes to play with its inversion, as we just saw in the last chapter. But in this blessing, he also passes over giving a special blessing to the secondborn, which we might expect him to do, and the thirdborn, and for some reason he settles a special blessing on the head of the fourthborn, Judah, the lastborn of Leah. Judah hasn't been much better than the three older brothers. Picking him out for a special blessing is peculiar behavior from Jacob. What's Jacob thinking? But there's something even more peculiar here. Let me ask you, would Jacob, speaking on his own behalf, give a very short blessing that sounds like no blessing at all to Benjamin? This is Jacob's chance to bless Benjamin. His first, uh, his, the son of his right hand, the youngest of all, the dearest son from his dearest wife, the hope of his old age, Benjamin, the boy who the whole family knew it would kill Jacob to lose. Would Jacob, the head of the I Heart Benjamin fan club of professional fatherly favoritism, just skim right over the Benjamin blessing? It's not likely. It's not like him. How would we expect Jacob to bless? Jacob the trickster, Jacob who plays favorites. Well, it turns out, how would we expect Jacob to talk is not the right question. We shouldn't be asking what was Jacob thinking when he said these things. We should be asking what was God thinking? Because Jacob's blessing here is prophecy. It's the word of God in a prophetic oracle that's bigger than Jacob's intentions, wiser than his wisdom, and deeper than his depth. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 tells us about prophecy. It says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This blessing, Genesis 49, was not produced by the will of Jacob. Jacob spoke prophecy from God as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. What Jacob was thinking might have been, Time for one last feat of strength and a mighty airing of the grievances at our final festivus together. Time to let these lying punks know what I really think about them and pick out Benjamin as my favorite one more time to rub their noses in it before I die. Time to let them all know how it's going to be from now on. But if that was his plan, then what came out was not what he expected. Jacob may have been like the prophet Balaam in the book of Numbers. You remember him? A king called on Balaam to curse the tribes of Israel, and Balaam said, I can try to curse them, but I'm warning you, once I start prophesying, I can only say what God puts in my mouth. So he went and stood on a hill and tried to curse them, but four times blessings came out. We don't know for sure. Jacob may have tried to say something good here. By the grace of God, we've seen Jacob's character changed over the course of the book of Genesis. This old man may have agreed with every word he said as he said it. He may have had insight into what he was saying. Or he may have been surprised at what came out of his mouth while it was coming out of his mouth. Either way, what he spoke was prophecy from God. Um, as he was, what did Peter say? Carried along by the Holy Spirit in these words. So we already saw one piece of evidence for this. Jacob's own opinion was that Benjamin was the most beloved. But the words of the prophecy have very little to say about Benjamin and instead make much of Judah and Joseph. But here's another piece of evidence. Jacob says more than he could possibly understand. Look at what Jacob says about Simeon and Levi in the verses they share, starting at verse seven. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. 
Now, from reading Genesis, we know about some of the violence and wrath that Simeon and Levi unleashed in the world. It was, it was bad news. It had bad consequences. When Jacob says they will be punished by being divided and scattered, he's treating them not as individuals, but as tribes. Simeon himself won't be scattered. How can you scatter one man? That would be nasty. But the tribe of Simeon will be scattered. So the prophecy predicts the scattering of Simeon, the tribe. And in the course of biblical history, after Israel enters the land and the centuries roll by, Simeon is, in fact, thoroughly scattered, so scattered north and south that it becomes meaningless to talk about their territorial land anymore. They still exist as a tribe, but they are dispersed and distributed without a home of their own. But Simeon and Levi are bundled here, and the exact same words spoken about Simeon are spoken about Levi, and for the same exact reason. But think of how the future unfolds for Levi. You notice something strange. The tribe of Levi turns out, indeed, to be scattered. But in Levi's case, it means something entirely different. Later on, the Lord refuses to assign Levi any specific territory in the Promised Land, because the line of Levi is the line of priests, And instead of land, the Lord says of this priestly line, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance. Now, that's pretty special, and you can't really complain about that. The very same words of Jacob turn out to be the near disappearance of Simeon, he will be scattered, but the special blessing and elevation of Levi, the Lord is his inheritance. Jacob could not have understood this on his own. Levi was not at this time the priestly line. How could Jacob have predicted that scattering was a curse on one brother and a blessing on the other? The scattering of Levi is a mark of God's special choice of his line to be God's own possession. Not only to be blessed, but to be blessed as ministers who would be a blessing to all the others. Jacob spoke far better than he knew because he spoke by the Holy Spirit as the Spirit moved him to speak, inspired words that are the Word of God. The Word of God here in the mouth of Jacob shows its true character. It's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting a division between soul and spirit. These words are the Word of God. Because look again closely at verse 7. I will divide them. I will divide them. Who will divide them? Is it Jacob speaking? Well, Jacob's going to be dead in two dozen verses. He, he won't do anything. He's going to pull his feet up, and that's it. His days of doing are done. Who will divide Simeon and Levi? God will. Who says, I, I, I will divide? The living God says that. The living God before whom we all stand, the one with whom we have to do, the one who looks at the man and sees the tribe. Jacob's eyes were dim, but God saw the end from the beginning. And he spoke it. I will divide. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. That means these words we're looking at, strange as they are, with all their difficulties and all their woof boys and other random things that make us wonder what they mean, these very words have the attributes of Scripture. They have authority, necessity, sufficiency, and clarity. It's a little miniature systematic theology of the attributes of Scripture for you. They are authoritative because they're from God. Necessary because they tell us things that we wouldn't know without them. Sufficient, because they tell us all we need to know on this subject. And they have clarity, because even though we can't be certain about some of the details, the big picture is crystal clear. It's almost too clear for comfort. 
Now, we don't have time to go through very many of the specific promises in this chapter, but from what we've just seen of the oracle to Simeon and Levi, have you seen enough to be confident about the rest of God's word? It's tempting in 2018 to treat the Bible as if it were not authoritative, necessary, sufficient, and clear. We wouldn't dare say that about the whole Bible. We're more pious than that. But we might give in to the temptation to start picking away at the weird bits, especially in the Old Testament. It's tempting in 2018 to treat at least the strange old parts of this book as non-authoritative because they've been misused, unnecessary because they tell us things that we don't think we need to know anything about, insufficient because they don't seem to tell us things that we do feel an urgent need to know about, and unclear just because it requires careful, thoughtful work and devout meditation and time and submission to God's authority to understand what's being said. But this is the word of God. If you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart, but respond to the one who is speaking. I will divide. Now, all scripture is inspired, but some sections do stand out. I sometimes say you're allowed to have a favorite book of the Bible, but you're not allowed to have a least favorite book of the Bible. Don't do that. Um, nevertheless, though it's all inspired, it's all good for uh, profitable for, for understanding and teaching. Um, nevertheless, some sections stand out. I'm not prepared this morning to interpret unto you the meaning of every line in here. The wolf boy thing in particular is something I'm still scratching my head about and intend to look up. Uh, so I'm confident it has a meaning. I am just not prepped to share it with you this morning because I'm still thinking about it. But I am prepared to draw your attention to a standout section in this chapter. The part where it becomes extremely clear that God is behind the blessing, that God has his mind as usual on his beloved son, Jesus Christ. God's purposes of glorifying Christ are evident throughout this entire chapter, but they jump right out at you when he begins describing the Lion of Judah. We could say the Lion of Judah, the Lion Cub as he's described here. Look at verses 8 to 12. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now Jacob's prophecy here picks out Judah as the one who shall be praised by his brothers. It sounds a lot like Joseph's dreams of the stars bowing down to Joseph or the bales of hay bowing down to him. But now that the time of Joseph's special role has been fulfilled, the theme of praise from the brothers has been transferred to the future of Judah. Not only will he be praised by his brothers, he will conquer his enemies. When? When will Judah's brothers praise him and his enemies be conquered by him? Once again, it's not in the lifetime of Mr. Judah ben Jacob standing there in front of his father, but in the tribe that would come from him. His brothers will praise him and his enemies will be conquered by him in the days to come. We could look right in the middle of Israel's history when David rules over Israel and enlarges the borders of the land. We read it happening in the books of Samuel when Saul is replaced by David, King Saul replaced by King David, or to put that in Genesis terms, notice when the line of Benjamin, the son of Jacob's right hand, is replaced by the dynasty of Judah in the person of David. 
the man after God's own heart. And taking one more step forward, spoiler alert, we know that great David's greater son, Jesus Christ, will be appointed as the ruler of the nations when God exalts him highly. We can only hold off making the application to Jesus for so long here because Jacob's blessing centers on him, revolves around him, and pushes forward to him. But look more closely for a minute at verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That line, until tribute comes to him, it seems to change the subject from Judah, who will do some ruling, to somebody else later in the line of Judah, someone who will draw the obedience of the peoples or the Gentiles, somebody who will bring in such a golden age that grapevines will be big and strong enough to tie your donkey to. That you do that with trees, not vines, but it's going to be a great golden age. That wine and milk will be plentiful, someone whose kingdom will include the nations of the earth, not just the tribes of Judah. Who is that descendant of Judah who this will all be true of? What is his name? Well, I'm reading from the ESV here. If you're reading from the New American Standard or the King James, you can see a name for him there in the text, Shiloh. We may not all have it in our Bibles because there's a difficulty going on here with the Hebrew that different translation committees have to make different decisions about, apparently. In those older translations, there's a recognition that there's a strange set of words and letters here that could mean tribute comes or until he comes or until something comes to him. But if you decide you're not sure about that, you could just take the letters in Hebrew as apparently just in the order they are. You could say, maybe they're a name. So the ancient rabbis decided to just treat them as a name, and that name is pronounced Shiloh. So your translation may say, as my grandmas did, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall the gathering of the people be. Shiloh. It's a name or a title for the Messiah, as even the ancient Jews confessed. He will rule over the nations and bring them peace and prosperity. This is the God-appointed ruler the whole world is looking for without knowing it. This is the desire of nations. The name given here is Shiloh. Shiloh was not on the ballot last week. I looked really hard and tried to vote for him, but he wasn't there, and I didn't want to bother with the write-in. But we will not have real and lasting peace or justice and prosperity until Shiloh comes, because Shiloh is a Genesis 49, 49 prophetic name for Jesus Christ until Shiloh comes. Listen to Israel. This is what will happen in the days to come, in the last days. Shiloh will finally come. So last week we had yet another election, yet another most important election of our lifetimes, and yet again it did not result in anything that will bring lasting peace or prosperity, and it won't until Shiloh comes. This week we had an evil act of violence carried out in another mass shooting here in our state, and we had a knife attack in Australia and a bombing in Mogadishu, and we know from long, bitter experience that we will continue to grieve things like this until Shiloh comes. This week, we are on fire again, and life is hard and scary, and it will be until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is the desire of nations, whether the nations know it or not. And Shiloh is our only hope because Shiloh is just a prophetic name for Jesus Christ, who came once to save and will come again in glory, and whose kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Now this is all mysterious and deep, and it's ancient and it's strange. 
And it's the word of God in the mouth of Jacob, seeing farther into the future than Jacob's dimmed eyesight could look. We only understand part of what these words mean. Every word is true. The main things are clear, but there still remains a lot of mystery. But you know what? You don't have to understand everything here to get some good out of it. Do you know that about the word of God? You do need an intelligent, adult, informed understanding of what the Bible says. That's why we preach long sections of Scripture and study through them and sit with them and work with them and have them explained until we understand what's going on. But all the words of God are infinitely deep and full, and your informed adult understanding doesn't mean you have plumbed the depths of the mind of God. But we know they're the Word of God, so we carry them with us, and we grow into them as much as we can. We receive them gratefully, We thank God for these words and we revere them. But even when we don't understand all that's in them, we still benefit from them. How many times have you memorized a passage of Scripture with a surface level of understanding and then later on you're standing in line at the post office and it just dawns on you, oh, that's what that means. I let those words inside my head and I didn't understand all that was there, but now I do. This happens all the time if you do scripture memory. You're attracted to a passage of scripture, you memorize it, you write it on your heart, you think you've got it, and then unglimpsed depths of meaning sort of burst forth from it once it's committed to memory. Or here's an illustration for you. When I was a little boy in a four-square church here in Southern California, we used to sing this simple little scripture song, we are gathering together unto him. Do you know this one? We are gathering together unto him. Unto him shall the gathering of the peoples be. We are gathering together unto him. I liked it. I sang it. It's a sweet song. I did not know I was singing Genesis 49.10 in the King James Version. I did not know it was about Shiloh. I didn't, I never heard of Shiloh. I just thought there was Jesus. Well, there is just Jesus. Shiloh is the Genesis 49 name for him. I didn't know that by adding my little voice to the song being sung by a congregation of Gentile believers in Jesus, that I was part of the fulfillment of a prophecy right then and there in the words I was singing just as we were this morning as we gathered together unto him and praised the God of Abraham. I didn't know that Shiloh had come in person the first time. The Gentile nations were gathering together to worship him until he came again. I didn't know all that. I was just worshiping Jesus and saying words I loved but did not fully understand. This is some of the greatness of God's word. It's not all about you or designed for your immediate grasp and understanding. It's bigger than that. Some of the Bible's for other people at other times. Every word's inspired. All scripture is useful for instruction and reproof and more, 2 Timothy 3.16, but not all of it is immediately applicable to every person at every time. There's another way to put it. The word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. How much of our path does the word of God light up at any given time? Sometimes just the very next step, and it leaves the rest of the path in darkness. But sometimes that's enough especially when what it lights up is what we are supposed to do next, no matter what the consequences. Then we just take that step and wait for more light. So if that's where you are and you've got a hard decision ahead of you, you know what the right thing to do is, but you don't know what's gonna follow from that, then do the right thing. Take the next step and expect more light to show up as you need it. You know your duty, then you know enough to do your duty. But then sometimes it works the other way, and I think this really applies to the prophecy we're looking at. Sometimes the word of God lights up a distant step and shows us where things are going, but it leaves the next step, unfortunately, in darkness. And we have to step out in faith onto we know not what, using our best judgment about what we should do next, 
This is often the case with prophecy. We know where it's all going, but we don't know how it's going to get there or how soon. So if that's where you are and you just don't know the very next step and your fear and anxiety and dread are beginning to rise, direct your attention to the far-off thing that you can see, the bright, distant horizon that reminds you that God's ways are higher than ours and that God brings about results we could never anticipate from the darkness of the next step. God knows more than we do, and he tells us what we need to know. In fact, he knows more than we know about what we need to know. So if you think you know better than God about what you need to know, you don't know. This is what it's like to have a God. This is just what life with an omnipotent God is like, an omniscient God. To be a child of a heavenly father who has it all under control and knows what we need. He doesn't always tell us what we think we need to know, And sometimes he tells us strange things, unexpected things, things that, if we are honest, seem irrelevant to us. And this is the last thing I want to say about this chapter. You know the biggest thing God says through Jacob in this blessing? He says 12. 12. I don't mean verse 12. I mean brought to you by the number 12, he says 12. This is so big and simple that you kind of have to get some distance from it to notice that that's what's happening here in Genesis 49. This is where God has been saving up and waiting to say 12, and he says it. It's a very important thing he says, 12. He made a promise to Abraham, through Isaac shall your seed be, so that's one. Long, slow wait for Abraham to get to one. Then Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Hey, that's two. But when it got to Jacob, God said, 12. When the word of God came to Jacob, it went big. It went into fulfillment mode. So when God says 12, he's saying, this is it. This is the payoff. This is where it multiplies. This is, this is where we go into fulfillment mode, and I'm going to explain how things work. And the answer is 12. The 12 tribes of Israel. It didn't necessarily look like 12. Remember, if you're sitting there looking around at that, uh, that little, little gathering, it looks like Leah's six boys, Rachel's two boys, four kids from the servant women, but it's 12. God sees 12. Verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. God sees that gathering and sees a unity where sometimes all we can see is fragments and brokenness. God saw 12, and Jacob said 12, and this is the word of God. Almost all the 12s in the Bible, and there are a lot of them, are based on this 12. There's one 12 that comes before this, but I think it's a little, uh, it's a little preview of this one. And then downstream from this, all the rest of your Bible's full of 12s that are pointing back to this. 12 pillars in the tabernacle, 12 stones on the breastplate of the high priest, 12 bowls of washing in the temple, 12 staffs in numbers, 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan, and a robe, when the kingdom is divided, a robe torn into 12 pieces. If you decide to track those 12, especially the 12 tribes, through the whole Bible, it is difficult. I'll just be honest here. I'm supposed to be a theologian who knows lots of stuff, but I lose track of the 12. Ephraim and Manasseh replace Joseph, but somehow that's not 13. It's 12. They get really huge. Simeon gets dispersed. Somehow it's still 12. Ten tribes abandon David and get carried off to Assyria. Do they come back? I don't know, but it's still 12. It's just, it's hard to count to 12, and I have to keep cheating and looking at the answers in the back of the book and going, all right, 12, and then go back and work the problem set at the front of the book. All through the Bible, God can count to 12 and treat the line of Jacob as the 12 tribes of Israel. 
But you know who else says 12? Shiloh says 12. And by Shiloh, of course, I mean Jesus Christ. In Matthew 19, 28, he says this to his disciples. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Sounds like a third grade question, but why did Jesus pick 12 disciples? I mean, some of them were brothers, so it's probably not meaningful to think of each of them actually being from each of the tribes, but they were 12, and they were 12 on purpose. They were 12 for a reason, as Jesus shows in that statement in Matthew 19. There were 12 because God is carrying out this plan, and Jesus is in on it, and the plan of God is in the hands of Shiloh, and the plan is fulfillment to the power of 12 or in multiples of 12 or something. Again, this is not at all what we predicted. I'm saying it over and over to irritate you on purpose, and I hope I'm succeeding. It's not what we think we need. We ask God, why is my life turning out the way it is instead of this other way I thought it was going to turn out? And God says, 12. (laughs) And we'd like to correct him and say, I did not ask you what is 6 plus 6. I didn't ask you what, I didn't ask you any numerical question. Why is the answer 12? God, why is the change and the transformation I'm looking for so slow in coming? And God says 12. God, why doesn't the fulfillment of the promised blessing look like I thought it would? Why is this family such a mess? Why, why is it hard to even count heads here? And God says 12. God, why do you keep saying 12? And God says 12. Yeah. I mean, it really sounds rude. Um, It sounds arbitrary and irrelevant, like it's not immediately obvious to any of us why the things we want to know about our own lives have anything to do with this number that God seems so interested in impressing on us. Have you ever asked somebody advice, and you know you are ignorant, you know you lack understanding and insight into something, so you go to an expert and you ask them the advice, and they give you an answer so comprehensive and profound and fundamental and far-reaching that you don't even understand it, right? Like you can tell, you know enough of what they say that you think, oh right, that's the answer. But you thought you had like a hard choice between three things and they say something to you like 12 or they say, your whole question is so badly formed that no answer could possibly satisfy you. (laughs) I mean, your needs are real, the thing you're confronting is a real problem, yes, you do need to make a decision, but the way you framed it is so far off base that you should probably pack a lunch and come back for the long explanation of this. And then you say, well, could you give me the short version? And they do, and you don't get it. They're like, well, that, that wasn't helpful. They say, well, come back for further instruction. That's what's going on here. God says things that we can understand enough to understand the point of contact with our life, but to really enter into his way of thinking, you, you, you come to understand, oh, this is much larger than me. I have a place within it. My needs are real. God's care for me is real, but it's in a much vaster context. Again, if there's a God, and if God speaks, and if his ways are above ours, and his understanding is infinite, then we would expect him to say things to us that indicate he is working out a much vaster plan on a much grander scale in a way that isn't what we would have made up if we were making things up. Jesus picked 12 because Jacob said 12, because God is in the business of fulfillment and of counting to 12. 
if, if we were gonna really just go big with this, we could flip over to the book of Revelation. We could go from the first book to the last book and say, wow, 12. That occurs 22 times in the book of Revelation. Like uh, when God comes towards the end of a book, whether it's Genesis or the whole Bible, he really leans into it and starts saying 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12. 22 times in the book of Revelation. This vision and this prophetic blessing from the end of Genesis these are the, this is the perfect word of God that lays out the plan he's carrying forward. We still don't know all of what that means. There is some darkness in the details. But the big picture is clear. God is faithful and will fulfill his word and bring a blessing on all the nations of the world through these 12. And it will involve us. We have our little place in it. We're not the whole story. We're not the middle of the story, but we're in the story. God will bring a blessing on all the nations of the world through these 12 faithfully following this one. And those 12 will gather around him and sit on thrones with him. And we will gather around them and unto him shall the gathering of the people be as we gather together unto him among the 12. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for your perfect word. Thank you for being a God who is trustworthy, who shows us enough that we can know to trust you for the parts that we don't understand. Lord, having given us this word, give us eyes to see what is in it, ears to hear your voice in it. Teach us to receive your word, to follow your word, to revere it, and to believe it. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.